Live. Live from... This is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! Oh! He broke his head. Follow me. Follow me to freedom. Ready for this. Here's your host, Mike Phillips. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering Podcast. It's New York Sports Talk and Long Suffering Fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. I got a good show for you this week. We're going to get into the world of college basketball today. A lot of interesting stuff happening in the world of college hoops. Unfortunately, COVID is a big part of it. We're going to chat with our college hoops guy, Troy Moriello. We're going to talk to him in just a minute, catch up on some of these things. Let's do our Week 18 NFL picks. I'm going to be joined by the host of the Sports in the Waiting Room Podcast, Christopher, not the Mad Dog Russo. We're going to do some picks Close the book on the locals this year. The Jets and the Giants heading in very different directions the year ends. We'll get to that in just a bit. Make sure you lock in the other show. This week's two minutes. We're going to talk about why Kirk Herbstreit's a hypocrite, typically in terms of his views on college football players. But we'll get started with our opening tip here. We're going to set the stage what you have to look forward to in week 18 right after this. Three, two, one. Y'all ready for this? The opening tip. Opening tip time. We're going to talk about week 18. And remember back when the NFL announced their expanded 17 games? We had this whole thing about how this was the biggest season ever, how the extra week lead to more drama. We're at week 18 now. And there's actually less on the line than we thought there would be, which, go figure. It's that kind of year. The NFC, six of the seven playoff spots locked up. Green Bay secured home field by beating up on the Kirk Cousinless Vikings on Sunday Night Football. The last spot right now is either San Francisco or New Orleans. The 49ers play the Rams on Sunday. The Saints ho- are go to Atlantic on the Falcons. The rest of this is down to seeding in the NFC. Who's going to be the two? Gets that second home game. Who wins the NFC West between LA and Arizona? The order of the wildcard team. That's what the NFC is. The AFC, you got five teams locked in. Kansas City, Cincinnati, and Tennessee all in the divisions. Buffalo and New England are both in. One of them's going to win the AFC East. The Colts are in the sixth out right now. They should get in because they play the Jaguars in week seven, week 18. If they don't beat the Jaguars, something is seriously wrong here. If that happens, they will knock out the Steelers and the Ravens, the other two teams still alive in the AFC who play each other in week 18. Game 272 then becomes a true winner go home affair between the Chargers and the Raiders in Vegas. That'll be a lot of fun. If the chalk holds and nothing's guaranteed in this league, it's more weekly than ever this year. The chalk holes in the AFC. Tennessee gets the home field. I have a huge edge getting a Super Bowl 56. And the bye will be massive for them because they could have Derrick Henry back for the divisional round. And we saw what they did with Derrick Henry. They beat up the Bills. They beat up the Titans. They played the Rams very well. They beat the Rams the first game without him. The Titans could have home field, have the Chiefs coming to them for the AFC title game. That could be a huge difference because playing an arrowhead, we know how dynamic this is. The fun part right now, put aside week 18. The fact that week 18, there's not a ton of drama here. You can make the argument here that the AFC, such as the Chargers get in there, all seven teams in the AFC side reach the Super Bowl, which is pretty nuts. The NFC, you could say it's the same thing for five of the seven teams in there. I don't think the Eagles can. I don't think the 49ers or Saints can. I think the other five, Green Bay, LA, Tampa, Dallas, and Arizona are all title threats, which is pretty awesome. 
We'll get more into week 18. We'll do more playoffs next week. But we'll dive into the world of college basketball with Troy Moriello right after this. All right, we are back here. We are into the new year. We're talking college basketball. We're even doing this monthly here with our next guest, the host of the Seeing Red podcast. Troy Merrill is here. Troy, happy new year. How are you? Happy new year, Mike. Happy to be on again and do our kind of monthly chat now, it seems like, with uh, college basketball. Happy to be here. Yeah, the, the, the fans seem to want it, so I, I will get the people what they want. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, it means me coming on more. I'm totally for it. Yeah, it was so funny because the last time we talked was early December and everything was looking good. Then all of a sudden, <laughs> COVID came back, and COVID has basically been wrecking havoc on college basketball for the last month and for a month or so. It's been so frustrating. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 2021 kind of went out how it started, uh, I guess, and how 2020 uh, treated us a lot. You know, a lot of games being canceled. Like I, I just said to you off air, it feels like they're really hasn't been a consistent like flow to this season now for almost a month, really, since since you and I last uh, spoke. And yeah, I mean, hopefully, you know, they're they're obviously revising some policies now. They revised the forfeiture policy, which I think was a big step forward. Hopefully, you know, the worst of it is getting to be behind us if it's not already behind us. And we can kind of get back to the season that we saw in November and early December, where, you know, every scheduled game was actually being played and we weren't worrying about a game being canceled, you know, two hours before it tips off. So hopefully, you know, the next time that we talk, uh, we'll be talking about more games and, you know, we actually have a normal season again. Yeah, I mean, we talked the last time about how, oh, the Saturday before Christmas, you got to take off to watch all these games. And then like half the games he missed, they got canceled. I remember the worst, crazy, I think, was Tennessee and Memphis got canceled about 30 minutes before the tip because Memphis had COVID issues. And Tennessee had to have a scrimmage for all the fans who actually made it in before they called it, which was insane. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it feels like we've seen that a lot with, you know, my team, St. John's two weeks ago had a game canceled, I think five or six hours before it was supposed to tip off. I mean, not as crazy as the example that you just had, but yeah, it just seems like, you know, the day of, you can't really be too certain if your team's going to actually play a game or not, because these positives are, are just popping up everywhere. And a lot, in a lot of cases, it's with people that don't even really have symptoms. So they don't know that they have it until they're being tested, which I think is leading to a lot of these late cancellations that we're seeing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, think about some of these teams that haven't played. I mean, UCLA has played one game since December 2nd. One. They went to Marquette the 11th. They're coming back on the schedule this week. We had, so like every week there's a different team going on pause or teams on pause. I mean, just around here, the Metro Atlantic Athletic Conference, I, I think as of recording, I don't know if it's still accurate, seven of the 11 teams in the league are on COVID pause, which is absurd. And remember too about that a lot of these conference schedules are not built like they were last year where last year you know a lot of conferences kind of built it in assuming that games were going to get canceled or postponed or postponed really um, a lot of the schedules are not built this year for that so you're going to see teams playing like three games in a in a you know seven day stretch in a, in a, in a calendar week uh, just because you know we got to make these games up or as best as we can got to make these games up to get teams uh, their their you know scheduled games um, you know, it's not like last year where they kind of built in, assuming that we were going to have games postponed. I think that a month ago, even we didn't think that we were going to have to deal with that this year. And now, 
here it is again, unfortunately. So I'm curious to see how that maybe impacts teams, especially in these power conferences like the Big Ten uh, that we're going to get to and the Big 12, where it's just every game is a battle. You know, I'm curious to see when teams have to play three games in a week or, you know, four games in 10 days or whatever, uh, how that's going to impact some of these bigger conference teams. All I have to say is the selection committee has a mess on their hand around trying to sort these things out, whether it's like, oh, do we give this team credit for having for losing a, a third game inside it in five days? It's because they're tired. Like, do we mm-hmm. do we take mm-hmm. away from somebody who didn't who beats a team that was missing three key rotation players because of COVID? Do yeah. we have mm-hmm. a situation where we like poor Iona, for example, had a big game against Seton Hall get canceled? Do we dock them for that because they wanted to play the game, they couldn't play it? Like all that's a big mess. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, even like you mentioned, staying locally, my team, St. John's, they lost a a horrible game to Pittsburgh, who's maybe the worst power five uh, team in the country, but they didn't have their best player, Julian Champagny, you know, who's, who's, you know, one of the top maybe 20 players in the country. Uh, You know, how do you evaluate a game like that when a team is missing their best player? Uh, Seton Hall, their last two games, uh, they, they lost to Providence and they lost to Villanova, two really good teams. Um, but they didn't have two of their big men. They were they were only playing, I believe, with eight men in uh, both of those games due to COVID protocols and, and guys having uh, having COVID. So yeah, it's just it's really interesting to see how they're going to evaluate each individual team. Uh, I, I would assume it's going to be kind of on a case by case thing. But you know, it, like you said, it, it is just going to be a mess in about two months from now when they try to figure this all out. Yeah, two things that have to happen here is number one, the NCAA has to change its number of games down from twenty five because last year it was thirteen to get into the tournament. You have teams like UCLA where they've already had to miss four games of their own. And, like, you're asking a lot here with who knows how long this Omicron wave is going to pee. I think you have to drop the number, like, 20 games to, like, make the tournament. And it might even be lower depending on how crazy these outbreaks are. That's a good point as well. I mean, we've seen the NCAA has been um, fluid. Maybe it's taken a little bit more time. Um, but, you know, we've seen these conferences, you know, re- reverse their uh, forfeiture policy and, you know, be postponing games, or most conferences have done that, at least. So, you know, we, we've shown the ability to adapt throughout this season. Uh, they're going to have to keep doing that. And like you mentioned, that's that's a, a great point. You know, we're, we're, a lot of teams aren't, aren't going to get or might have trouble getting to the 25-game mark uh, this season just with how it's going right now and how it's probably going to go over the next maybe three, four weeks until hopefully we get, uh, you know, past the the brunt of, of, uh, of this kind of outbreak here. So hopefully, you know, they do, they do show some versatility and adapt to that as well. The other thing that's disappointed me too at the NCAA is the fact that there has been absolutely like no leadership from the top here saying like, you know, like here's some data we have, here's some ideas on how you can manage games. The NCAA has been quiet. It's like conferences, you figure it out on your own. You can take care of this. Like we're going to sit here and make the money. That, that bothers me. Yeah. And, and it feels like it's been that way, right. For the last two years, it's kind of been the NCAA saying, you know, Big Ten, ACC, SEC, Pac-12, you guys, you know, do your own thing, figure it out, and we'll just kind of be here. I mean, I haven't heard, like, or very rarely have I heard someone from the NCAA, you know, putting out a plan and, and like the other leagues kind of have done. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's been almost two years of this now uh, during this pandemic where the NCAA really hasn't shown that that leadership that you would hope in terms of, of having an actual plan as to how we're going to deal with this. Yeah, hopefully next time we talk, Kobe will be in a much better spot. We'll have much fewer post homies. But I want to get into one of the things and driving Mike recrazy a couple of days. I want to ask you this question. Why does ESPN hate college basketball? <laughs> well, I'll let you tell me because you seem very impassionate about this. So, so you can you can tell me first and then I'll weigh in. Yeah, so anyway, so I, I on the side, I write for fan side. I do college basketball covers. I write the games of the week. And fr- prior to, I think, the week of, week after Christmas, I'll get the schedule. I'm like, oh, Baylor's playing Iowa State. 
This is two undefeated teams in the Pac-12. I mean, the Big 12. Two teams in the top 10. And they are playing on New Year's Day. This is a fantastic showcase. Where is this game? It's on ESPNU at noon. And no one can find it. Because ESPN, if it was says, we're going to put the mega cast of the other New Year's Six Bowl games on ESPN too. I get that it's college football. I get the bowls are going to be on. I get it. But you have to put this somewhere other than ESPNU. I, I know the Big 12 has some blame for playing on New Year's Day, but ESPN can work a little harder to promote that game. Yeah, I know. I agree 100%. I, I think that the only defense I would say is, yes, it was New Year's Day where you're going to have the New Year's Day bowl games. And two, maybe since Iowa State has kind of been a surprise team, maybe, you know, looking ahead they didn't look at that as kind of being a marquee game but you're right i mean to not promote it and when you look at that in a in a vacuum and just say that one instance it doesn't look too bad but then when you look and you say duke gonzaga uh villanova uh, uh ucla gonzaga ucla i believe all games that were played at what 10 30 11 o'clock at night you know it just hasn't been a good job showcasing the top teams in your sport like in that instance uh on new year's day i, I kind of understand it there is at least some reason you know there was no reason i, I understand the games are being played on the west coast there was no reason for these games to be played at 10 30 on a friday night or, or i think the villanova ucla game was like 11 30 on a friday night yeah like it, when when you view the new year's day uh, incident with Baylor and, and Iowa State that you're mentioning kind of with the knowledge of what they've done all season long it just doesn't look good and like you mentioned uh, it seems like every big broadcast has some sort of NBA draft angle to it which we've hit on in the past um, yeah it just it hasn't been great uh, coverage so far I mean hopefully now uh, when now that college football is, is over and, and the NFL is going to be uh, done in the month we get kind of more of a focus on uh, college basketball from these networks but yeah that that was definitely a letdown it's been a letdown really for the past two months now be fair i think it's really espn problem because cbs cares when they when they do their games they put they, they put the announcers out there they do all this stuff fox cares and they do their games and another example i'll point out from the same week was they had lsu and auburn two top 20 teams in the pack in the sc which is one of the best conferences in the country no announcers were there they did it remotely and had the people calling out the monitor and the audio levels were completely out of whack and that's a top 20 game with two tremendous basketball teams like why are you investing in the product you're not gonna put any real effort into it and yeah, the same thing happened at uh, UConn, West Virginia. That was a while back. Same thing. Announcers are calling it from uh, from from the studio and just didn't sound good. Like you mentioned, I, I mean, that's a whole other thing about not sending announcers to to games. I, at this point now, the announcers should be at games uh, no matter what. There should be no more studio broadcast. But yeah, like you mentioned, if you're not going to put the money into it, you know, why broadcast it? Uh, it, it is really a shame to, to, to see college basketball kind of be thrown to the backseat like this. Yeah, and I think, again, I will point out, this is an ESPN-specific problem where, like, they assume that, oh, the audience doesn't care. We're, we're not going to put our put our everything. We're going to cut the corner on that broadcast, and we're going to have 17,000 different channels broadcast the Rose Bowl game, which is, on, which is only relevant to those two teams and not have any impact on the playoffs. So that just bothers me. Yeah, no, and, and I agree 100%. It's, it's, it's been an issue all season long. It has for sure. Let's get to some of the on-the-course stuff, which is really, I think, the more interesting stuff here, which... We'll start with Baylor, which obviously last time we talked, they demolished Villanova in that top 10 matchup. They went on the road to beat Oregon. Now they beat Iowa State. They are undefeated. One of three undefeated teams left as of recording time in the country. And this caught me a surprise. Do you really think that this team can repeat? I think so. They they just, you know, they have the experience, the championship experience, obviously. And they play defense, man. And, and when you play defense, like they play defense. I mean, I've never seen Villanova that out of whack in a game before. Uh, Villanova obviously is a three-point shooting team. You know, they go through some, you know, they're kind of streaky in terms of that. But 
a team watching that game a couple weeks ago when they just shut out Villanova defensively, that tells me, you know, if you can shut out a team like a top 25 team like that uh, and basically hold them to one of their worst offensive performances ever, uh, you're only going to get better. You know, uh, Scott Drew is a great coach. They're only going to improve, I think. And when they play and they're going to be battle tested in the big 12 as well, which we'll get to, uh, it's a, it's a fantastic conference. Uh, I think that, you know, as of right now, they're number one, they're, they're, they're in, in my opinion, going to go into uh, March Madness as probably the favorite unless something changes in the next uh, two months. And the way that they play defense, I think it's just going to be, it's going to be really, really tough for someone to beat them. Cause you know, we saw it with, with Virginia and it took Virginia a while, but Virginia did eventually win a national title playing that type of way. Uh, it can be done. And I think Baylor's, you know, they, like I said, they have the experience and I, I wouldn't count them out as, as one of the favorites for sure. Yeah, I also point out here, you mentioned the defense, too. Their offense is also incredible. I mean, they're the only team in, I think they're number, I'm on the Ken Palm rankings right now, they're number five most efficient offense in the country, number four defensively. Just at Michigan State, how good the Baylor offense is, because they ran them out of the gym in, in the battle for Atlantis, and that Michigan State team looked very good in their first two games. So, Baylor's a big threat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and the offense, like I, like uh, you just mentioned, when it's the top, you know, five Ken Palm offense as well, you know, it's going to be hard to compete with them, um, you know, Virginia, like I, I kind of brought up the Virginia example, but I kind of the knock on them was they were trying to win games, you know, 55, 53 or something like that. Baylor doesn't necessarily need to do that because like you mentioned, they have a really talented offense as well to go along with what I think is the best defense in the country. Yeah, for sure. I want to go to the SEC now, which I think is obviously the deepest conference in the country this season. And they have so many great teams. I mean, LSU is undefeated till last week. You have Auburn, mm-hmm. Kentucky, Tennessee, Alabama, Florida, the list goes on and on and on here. So, mm-hmm. Of that pie, who do you think is the best team in the SEC right now? You know, I, I really like Tennessee. I feel like, you know, they, they lost their first conference game. They've got three losses already. I don't know if they're the best team. Auburn is probably going to get all the headlines, and, and Kentucky, of course, is going to kind of get, uh, you know, all of the all of the news about them. But I like Tennessee. I, I don't know. I like Fulkerson. I like uh, Viscovi, the, the other guy that they got. Fulkerson's been in college for like six years. Um, I, I like Tennessee. I, I think that they're a good team. They got some senior leadership. But like you mentioned, that conference is so deep. When you look at Auburn, Kentucky, Alabama, um, Arkansas is having some struggles right now. Everyone thought Arkansas was a top 25 team to start the year. LSU, uh, t- Tennessee, they got six, seven teams. Florida, who I was really high on early in the se- or uh, going into the season. They're going to, you know, they're going to be a deep conference. They're going to be up there for one of the best uh, in, in the country. So I don't really know if there's a wrong answer. I just, I, I have, I have a soft spot for Tennessee, I think. Yeah. I, I'm looking there also at Jay Billis put out his bill, his first top 68 rankings of the season today. And he has Auburn and Kentucky top two in the conference. I agree on the Auburn take there because obviously the Walker Castle made a huge impact since he transferred in there. They have the NBA's have a lot. They're gonna have a lot of ESPN now. Is dropping on the Auburn broadcast talking Jabari Smith because he is a stud. He's gonna be probably one of the top picks in the draft. And that team is so talented. They went to LSU and beat them up up pretty badly that last game. So I would not be shocked. Auburn's our top SEC team entering the tournament. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Uh, yeah. Auburn. They look really, really good right now. They're they're riding high. And you know, as we always said, you're gonna be battle tested playing in a conference like that where, you know, almost every game, maybe not necessarily to the level of like the big 12 or the big 10, but every game is going to be going to be a fight uh, in, in that conference for sure. Yeah. And I look at the AP poll this week. I think the big 12 and the SEC combined for 10 to 25 spots, which is absurd. Probably the two best conferences in America right now. Uh, the big 10 is, is, is strong as well, but yeah, SEC and big 12, you look at the depth of those two conferences. It's, it's incredible. Yeah, I want to go to the Big 12 next because obviously we talked about their teams here. We They have a lot of great mm-hmm. groups in there. I see Baylor's number one. Kansas is top 10. 
Texas mm-hmm. is flirted with it at times. You have Oklahoma State and Ellsworth is unfortunate, but you have Oklahoma, you have West Virginia, you have a bunch of great teams. So there are 10 teams in this league. How many do you see them getting in? They got, what, five ranked in the top 25 right now. Uh, so that's for certain. I think Oklahoma is a tournament team. That's six. And then, I mean, between West Virginia, K-State, and TCU, probably one of them gets in as well. So we're probably looking at seven, maybe even eight teams from, a, what, an 11-team conference and 10 that are eligible. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's pretty, pretty uh, impressive. Iowa State's been the surprise team of the season for sure. Uh, what a job that coach is on uh, Ulzerberger there uh, uh, coaching Iowa State. I mean, just a phenomenal, you know, t- a top 10 team. They obviously suffered their first loss to Baylor over the weekend, which we touched on. Um, you know, no one saw them being anywhere near. They, I think they were picked near the bottom of the conference for sure. Yeah. We touched on Baylor. Kansas is a top, you know, 10 team. They got uh, Agbaji, who I think is probably, you know, a top 10 player in the, in the, in the country, if not top five. Uh, I was really high on Texas going into the season. They're a top 15 team. So yeah, you look at the big, the big 12. I mean, it's not crazy to say they send seven or eight teams to the tournament. Yeah. I'm looking at the counter right now. Cause I just think the five ranked teams, I think I, I think they get in there. Like West Virginia, yeah. cause they've had a good non-conference run. Yeah. TCU, mm-hmm. I think is the fringe one. And I think they have to win games in the league. I don't think they clearly play anybody outside the conference. One thing I'll yeah. say, Iowa State also made a great point about how quick they turn around. Like, Otzelberger, I mean, this team ended last year on an 18-game losing streak, and they've won 12 in a row to start the year for it, and they played Baylor very hard before they lost. I think them, Minnesota to a lesser extent in the Big Ten, shows you that, like, you know what? With the like the instant transfer rule, like, you can rebuild very quickly in college basketball. There's no excuse to be bad for that long if you're at a Power 5 school. Yeah the right coach like uh, Iowa State and Minnesota probably have. Yeah, you can rebuild, you know, within a year. Uh, like you mentioned, Iowa State was was horrible last year, one of the worst teams uh, in, in the country. Uh, look at them now. They're number 11, and they're poised at least right now. They're in a really good spot to make the uh, to make the NCAA tournament if they really just play, you know, decent. I, I don't think that they're going to keep up the run that they're on right now. I'm sure that they'll fall back a little bit. But if they, you know, play around 500 in the conference, they're going to get a good seed in the NCAA tournament, which if you would have said that three months ago, I think people would have thought you were crazy. The thing that's tough about the Big 12, though, is always that the league is so rugged that, like, you could just play well and still lose three games in a row. I'm like sitting there and you're out of the pole. Like what happened? Yeah, exactly. And, and I think we mentioned that about the, the big 10 as well. And I think those two conferences are very similar in that. Like you mentioned, you could play, you know, two or three really strong games in a row and lose all three of them, or you could play a really strong game. And then, you know, you lose that in overtime, let's say, you know, two days later, you're playing someone else on the road, you come back, come out a little flat, you know, you're down double digits early, you got to fight back and you, and you still lose that game as well. Like, you know, losses can just avalanche in these conferences for sure. Uh, especially the big 12 and the big 10, where, you know, there's so many, there's so much depth and the sec really, there's so much depth in these conferences. Yeah. You know, a, a two game losing streak can really quickly turn into like a four five game losing streak just how the schedule breaks out and how good these teams are yeah let's go to the big 10 now and the big 10 is a little bit of a cluster f right now if you look at their standings here because i mean purdue lost last night to wisconsin and they had a very bad effort in that game so they they're one and two in the league and we thought they were a national title favorite which is something else and then you look at the teams like michigan's underachieved michigan state which i call preseason to be top 15 like by january they're top 10 already which is impressive for them Ohio State's good. You got a lot of depth in this league. What do you think about the Big Ten as a whole? The story for now, at least, I think, is a lot of teams kind of underachieving or a lot of teams that we thought uh, were going to be at the top of this conference are not right now. I mean, Michigan State and Ohio State and even Illinois to an extent, I think people were pretty high on those teams. People thought those teams would be pretty good. But Michigan's got five losses already. 
Um, you know, Purdue just suffered their second conference loss. Indiana just lost to Penn State the other day. Uh, I thought Indiana was for sure, you know, a tournament team. I thought they were, uh, after seeing them play St. John's, I thought that they were, you know, going to be around a top 25 team. Uh, they've already, you know, lost two games in the conference. So, in my opinion, the, the story of the Big Ten right now is some teams kind of underachieving, actually. And, you know, like we just mentioned, losses can snowball, losses can avalanche uh, in this conference when you, you know, when you lose one, two, three, four in a row, just because of how de- how deep it is. Uh, I think Michigan, a team like Michigan is going to figure it out. They'll be a tournament team. Um, but, you know, for now, some of these teams maybe are, are underachieving a little bit and showing just how deep the conference is. Yeah, for me, I think you look the way I look at it is like, I think Nebraska is the worst team in this league by far. And then if you look at teams like Minnesota, Northwestern, Penn State are playing much harder than we thought they would at the start of the season. That's making it much harder. Yeah, and even Rutgers, you know, taking down Purdue. Uh, Yeah, I mean, right now, outside of of probably Nebraska, it doesn't look like any team in that conference is going to be an easy win. Uh, And even Nebraska on on Sunday took Ohio State down to to overtime, I believe, uh, in in, uh, Lincoln. So, yeah, it it really looks like every game in that conference is going to be tough, um, which you can say about a couple different conferences, but – yeah, the big the Big Ten is is uh, definitely going to have a lot of depth, and it's going to be a lot of cannibalism. I think teams beating up on each other. I don't think you're going to see any team, uh, you know, winning 16 games in that in that conference this season. I think it's going to be a lot of uh, parity in that conference for sure. Yeah, and I will point out also. I think Michigan State. I think the way their schedule's gotten off is very good. I think they're getting Michigan at the right time here because Michigan is still trying to find their way. If they get past that game. They had the brass on Wednesday. They should win that game. So if they get past Michigan five and zero in the conference, look out. They could be really, really tough to beat in that league. And you were you were right on them all the way through. I, I wasn't really as high on them uh, personally, but but yeah, they've looked really really good so far uh, this season, and they've gotten off to a really solid start in conference play. Yeah, I have on my calendar circled the twenty sixth of February. They host Purdue. That's the only time they meet this season. That's gonna be fun. Yeah. And, you know, the thing about the Big Ten that I love is just like every weekend or every, you know, every night, basically, there's a game where you're like, well, that's a cool matchup. You know, Michigan State, Ohio State, oh, uh, you know, Wisconsin, uh, Michigan. There's just always always a matchup that I'm like, oh, okay, I could I could check that out. That's a pretty decent uh, matchup. So that's what I love about the Big Ten. I do love that, too. I also love that for the Big East, too, because the Big East, we talked about a couple of times here, this conference is going to be so stacked and Villanova is getting written off a little bit because they play a tough schedule of all those losses. but. They came mm-hmm. out, they beat up Seton Hall over the weekend. They're mm-hmm. kind of finding their groove. Seton mm-hmm. Hall, we mentioned UConn, and some of the programs have been on pause like UConn and St. John's, but I think the depth of that league is also incredible. Yeah, it is. And you talk about Villanova. Um, you know, they really righted the ship these last these last couple of games, and that was a big win for them at Seton Hall. That was a tough environment uh, at the Prudential Center. They had a, a really nice crowd there. And uh, yeah, Villanova just just willed their way through. I mean, like I mentioned, Seton Hall, I think was only playing with eight guys. Uh, they were missing Ike Obiagu, who's one of their best shot blockers and rebounders. Villanova just dominated the glass in that game. And uh, yeah, really found their way. Um, I, you know, I don't love how they still don't want to go deep into their bench, Villanova, but they're still, I think, at least over the last week, I think that they show, or the last couple of weeks, I think that they showed they're still the class of this conference. Um, you know, there's a lot of talented teams in this conference. Providence has really uh, been the surprise so far. Seton Hall off a couple of good teams already. Uh, UConn, I think, is going to be there as well. And Xavier is, is, a, is a top 25 team also. But I still think, you know, unless someone dethrones Villanova, uh, you know, later on in the season or in the conference tournament, it's still Villanova's conference to lose. Um, but, you know, the depth is still there for the Big East as well. Uh, my team, St. John's, hasn't even played a conference game yet due to uh, COVID pause. But, you know, 
in this conference, I, I don't think it's crazy to say that they send probably six or even seven teams to the, to the tournament, depending on, um, you know, how, how the, the schedule breaks out and who beats who, uh, you know, Georgetown and, and DePaul probably won't be tournament teams, but I think you could pretty much make a case uh, for every other team, maybe, maybe not Butler as well, but you can make a case probably for eight teams to get in uh, eight teams won't get in, but you know, the, the, the and it's, it's got that depth again. Yeah. And I think the team we even mentioned there is province is 13 and one on the year so far. And, that trio of Nate Watson, uh, Noah Horsler, and Al Durham is ridiculous. And Ed Cooley's done a really good job at getting that team back at the top of the conference again. Yeah, and Al Durham's been one of the best transfers in the in the country for them. Uh, he's been really, really impactful. And Nate Watson is, is looking like we thought he was going to be. You know, we thought that team was going to kind of run through Watson, and it has. Uh, he's been really, really good. And, and Horkler, like you mentioned, he killed St. John's in a couple of games last year. Uh, another guy who's, who's really, really stepped it up for them. And yeah, Providence, they've, without a doubt, they've been the surprise team of the Big East so far. And they're probably, you know, up there with, like you said, Minnesota and Iowa State as maybe some of the surprise teams of the country so far. Yeah, you look at the Providence schedule this year. They play good teams. They have some good wins in their resume. They're 13 and 1. I mean, they won at Wisconsin. Grant, Wisconsin, a little shorthanded. They didn't win that game. They beat Texas Tech in the. Big East, Big 12 battle. They've beaten UConn. They beat Seton Hall already. So, a great start for them. Yeah, they've already got a couple of resume wins on their schedule. So, yeah, they're looking like a uh, like a team that could, you know, potentially be, you know, a, a decent seed in the NCAA tournament and, and maybe win a game, which is kind of the ceiling for Providence. You know, get get a, get a win in the, in the NCAA tournament and, uh, you know, see what happens in the second round. Yeah, and St. John's plays them on Saturday up in, up in Rhode Island. So, that's going to be fun. They do. Yeah. That's a big game for St. John's. That's, you know, St. John's didn't do themselves any favors in the, uh, in the non-conference losing to, to Pittsburgh. Uh, they played three power five teams. They lost to all of them. They lost to Kansas and they lost to Indiana. Uh, we've hit on both of them uh, before. Yeah. And, and, you know, they've, they've got to do some work in the conference. Now they probably need 11 to 12 wins in the conference, which is going to be a tall order because the big East, like we said, it's very deep. It's got, like I said, six, seven teams that you can make a case for in the NCAA tournament. So, you know, almost every game now for St. John's is going to be not a must win, but it's it's going to be important. You know, they, they can't take any nights off. They can't have any uh, bad losses. And it, it starts tomorrow night against DePaul and then the big game on, on Saturday against number 16 Providence. Yeah, and look at their schedule. I mean, they had four games already postponed due to COVID. And like now they're going to be playing a lot of games like down the stretch here. That team's got a very hard road. And, and for them, it's kind of a bummer because – you know, they had a game against Butler and a game against Georgetown uh, uh, postponed, which are two teams, like I mentioned, that are probably near the bottom of the conference. Butler would have been a, a home game as well. You know, it was a chance for St. John's to get off to maybe a three and one, four and one type start uh, in the conference, just based on, you know, the, the, how their schedule broke. And now they kind of lose that. But obviously those games will get rescheduled. But yeah, it's a bummer for St. John's, but they're they're going to have to win those games regardless whether they want them, you know, in December or February or January. They, they have to win uh those type of games against Georgetown and DePaul and Butler. Yeah, I'm looking. I think the Marquette home game has not been rescheduled yet, but the other one mm-hmm. seems to have been, and it's like there are lots of weeks they're playing three times or like five yeah. to ten days. They have a lot of work to do. Yeah, and it's like we, we spoke at the, at the top of this. You know, it, you know, when you have to play three games in a week, you wonder what it's going to do to these teams. St. John's going to be a perfect example of that. They're a team that has NCAA tournament aspirations and is going to have a, a couple of weeks now where they're playing three games in a week. Uh, they play Seton Hall later this month. Uh, two times in three days, they play the Seton Hall. That's a challenge. <laughs> that's that's going to be a challenge. for, And that's not just St. John's. That's all over the country. Teams are going to have to deal with this. 
Yeah, the good old-fashioned NBA-style home-and-home with Seton Hall. That's a new one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It uh, makes me think of the NBA for sure. Yeah, and I think the second one, I think is on the Monday one, I think is like at like at their game, gym on campus. They don't, get, they don't use the Prudential Center. It is, yeah. It's a uh, it's a Walsh gym for Seton Hall, and I believe it's only uh, only Seton Hall students are able to go to that game. So that'll kind of be a unique unique setting uh, to see St. John's and, and Seton Hall playing at uh, Seton Hall's campus arena, much smaller crowd than you would expect for those two teams. Yeah, that'll, that'll be kind of cool. It's like we were talking about a couple of years ago. We wanted St. John's to play more games at Connor second, the big easy, because those games, the, they play a different experience. I'll never give the garden up, but like just, I think mm-hmm. the intensity they have at Connor second, I think is almost more unmatched than it is at MSG. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And then perfect example of that was when they played Pitt. I was at that game a couple of weeks ago. Um, yeah. You know, the, the crowd was, was not great. It was probably, you know, it was a decent amount of Pittsburgh fans there as well. And that's kind of how it goes for St. John's when they play, you know, Villanova and Georgetown and UConn and, and Seton Hall um, uh, in, in, you know, big East games at home at Madison square garden. It's, you know, kind of a 60, 40 type split. It's a home court advantage. Sure. It's a recruiting advantage, but at the end of the day, it doesn't bring that type of advantage that, uh, that you would hope that Karna second does. Yeah. Let's touch on a couple of mid major things to watch here. So let's start here. One, one I'm going to say here. Which conference gets more bids, the WCC or the ACC? <laughs> I, I would still say the ACC, I, I, I think. But, I mean, that's that's a question that I don't think we thought we were going to have yeah, two months ago about. But, yeah, it's, 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 uh, it speaks to the strength of the WCC, but also the kind of struggles or the crap of the ACC so far. And the WCC has four legitimate, like, like tournament teams. Obviously, Gonzaga we know about. BYU was ranked BYU. for a while. Mm-hmm. Saint San Francisco is having a renaissance. I mean, they're thirteen yeah. and one. They, they and they credit to them for impressive scheduling. And Zaga had to postpone that game. They went and scheduled yeah. Loyola Chicago, which is awesome because they're playing. Mm-hmm. I think two o'clock at a JUCO in Utah on Thursday, which is amazing. <laughs> yeah. And and I mean that's what these these schools have to do. You know, it, it's uh it's kind of similar to what we saw last year. You know, you got to be adaptable, and if you lose one opportunity you got to find someone else to play uh you know credit to them for doing that because you know like you said that those games aren't going to make make themselves up and sometimes you know like like we mentioned iona losing a game against seton hall uh you know you don't get credit for not playing a game so these teams are trying to figure out any way that they can to to strengthen their schedule yeah they they, that one the fourth one in the wc is obviously saint mary's who they've been playing off to a good start so i see those league those teams that beat each other up a little bit make sure they don't catalyze each other but the acc i want to stick a second here i mean like after Duke, where are we going here? Who's getting the tournament? Because North Carolina looks shaky. Wake Forest, Virginia Tech, Miami's right how they play. Nobody. I mean, like that league's a mess. Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, when, we, when you had me on last month, I think that you asked me if they get four and a half. And I, I think I took the over on that. I'm not feeling as confident <laughs> about that right now. But like you said, behind Duke, I don't know, man. I mean, I still think North Carolina will probably get in, but. Yeah, I mean, after that, it's a bunch of, you know, four, five, six lost teams that just don't look any good uh, right now. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm definitely less confident. I think that our over-under has probably shifted from like four and a half to like two and a half in, in the last month uh, in terms of how many teams the ACC gets in. I said the number now is three and a half. I think that's the right number now. Yeah, yeah, I would say, yeah, three and a half is, is fair. It's, it's shifted down to one uh, because, like you said, I, I think the Duke is obviously a lock. UNC will get in, and then they'll probably figure out one more team, and then it's kind of a toss-up if they get a fourth. Yeah, and Duke's not going to play another ranked team the rest of the season. No way the ACC is going to get close <laughs> to the top 25. No, I mean, I mean, maybe UNC will. They've only got the three losses right now. But, but yeah, they're, they're, their schedule is not going to do them any favors, which is kind of crazy, right? I mean, in the ACC, you'd expect to have a lot of opportunities at, at quad one wins. 
Uh, it's kind of barren right now because of how bad the, the conference is. So we'll see how much that hurts Duke uh, from a seeding perspective, uh, you know, in, in two months from now, de depending on how many real opportunities they get uh, for big wins in the ACC, which right now doesn't look like very many. Yeah, for sure. I, I think, obviously, I'm interested to see the Mountain West, how that plays out, too, because Colorado State's unbeaten. I haven't played for a while because of COVID. San Diego State is probably a tournament team. Boise State's mm -hmm. pretty good. Nevada's dangerous. We've seen what they – they gave Kansas a little trouble, like when they went to the fog last week to do that. I think that's a fun week to watch track, also. Definitely, yeah. And Colorado State right now is the the class of that conference. But yeah, like you mentioned, there's four or five teams, and uh, and um, you know, San Diego State is always going to be a, a strong competitor in that conference. So curious to see how that shakes out. Yeah, I think also to close on the local angle here, go to, go to Iona here because obviously they are right now they they've had. COVID problems, unlike last year where it was their own problems, now everybody who they seem to play has COVID, and now they, they're they trying desperately to find games. Their entire schedule, I think, for the for the last four scheduled games have all been postponed. The Mac moved one up for them. They play on Sunday against Maris. They squeak one out. Now they don't have anything this whole week. They're trying to get a game on the schedule non-conference, so it's going to be a challenge for Patino and company over there to sort of keep that group sharp because they're, through no fault of their own, not going to play playing enough games. Yeah, no, exactly. And it's, it's like you mentioned, I mean, how many games do these teams actually actually get in in terms of, of uh, these low major conference teams? So you got to be adaptable, like we said, uh, got to be willing to kind of take on a game on a short notice. And uh, yeah, it's going to be tough for Iona, but they're still the class of that conference. I, I still think that they'll probably take care of business in that conference and uh, and uh, get the automatic bid. But, you know, we'll see in terms of what seed they actually get in the NCAA tournament uh, because they do this year actually have, you know, an impressive uh, non-conference win over Alabama. Yeah, I, I know Patino has said that he's working on trying to get them like a top 25 type non-conference game like in there this week. I'm, I think a lot of teams are scared of playing Patino on short notice. I don't know how successful they're going to be, but they should try and get something on the schedule. Maybe it's another like high quality mid that needs a, needs a schedule boost because they're going to have a lot of games in the math that gets right their net down. Yeah, and, and you know, for a team like Iowa, it's, it's kind of a, a low risk, high reward thing. You know, if you do get a game against a top 25 team or, you know, a power conference team, um, you know, it's, you know, if you lose that game as an underdog, you're not really going to get killed for it. It won't really hurt your resume. Uh, if you do pick up a win, like we saw them do against Alabama earlier this season, it's a huge resume boost. And it's a potentially a chance to, you know, boost yourself up a seed line or two, which in that turn makes, you know, your first round tournament game a little bit uh, more easy to win. So, or, or at least, you know, more likely to win. So yeah, I, if, if they have to be adaptable, they have to be willing to, to take on some games and um, yeah, we'll, we'll see if they're able to do that. Yeah, and let's wrap it up here. We're not going to be back for a little bit because obviously the football is kind of taking over here, but like, what are some games you're looking forward to over the next like, few weeks that you're excited to see? Yeah, well, I got one circled on my calendar. Uh, it's, it's uh, when is this? January 15th, which is, I believe, two Saturdays from now. Uh, showdown in the SDC between Tennessee and Kentucky. Uh, like I mentioned, I'm very high on Tennessee. I, I like them a lot. Uh, I, I think that Tennessee is, is not the maybe not the best team in that conference, but I still think that they're very, very strong. And that's a good measuring stick game for them against Tennessee or against Kentucky, who I think is one of the best teams uh, in that conference. And then later that day, you've also got or is it late? Yeah, later that day, you've also got Texas and Iowa State, a battle in the Big 12 uh, Two again, two ranked teams, two top 15 teams. Iowa State's been the surprise of that conference. Texas, uh, I still think Texas is a Final Four team, or at least has a Final Four caliber team. Uh, that's a fun day. And then, you know, you've also got in the Big East that day, UConn and Providence, big game. UConn could be ranked by then. Arkansas and LSU in the in the uh, SEC. So that's a really fun Saturday, uh, two Saturdays from now. you got a lot of big games uh, on the schedule for, uh, for uh, uh, January 15th, that is. 
I'm very, I'm going to be very aggressive here. I'm going to be bold because this, this is the end of the month. So who knows what Coe is going to do to this. But the Big 12 SEC challenge this year is going to be huge. I mean, some of the matches here, I went to that day. I mean, you got Oklahoma and Auburn in playing in that day. You got West Virginia going to Arkansas. The big one of the day, Baylor going to Alabama. That could be their first loss. They haven't lost in Big 12 play at that point. You also have Kentucky taking on Kansas, Tennessee taking on Texas. That's a huge day of basketball. When you have you know two of the top maybe three conferences in America playing uh, this late in the season as well, where everyone is kind of rounding into form now. Uh, yeah, the Big Twelve and SEC challenge is always a always a fun time. But you know, it feels like in the past that challenge has always kind of been about all right, like Kentucky, who's Kentucky playing and who's Kansas playing now. You know, both of those conferences are, are really, really strong. And like you just mentioned, that's six, seven really good matchups uh, over a weekend. That, that's going to be a, a really fun thing. Hopefully, COVID cooperates and we don't get any of those postponed or I would assume canceled outright because yeah. uh, that would be a real shame. So hopefully we're past it by then. Yeah, two more underrated ones on that slate also. LSU takes on TCU. That's an, uh, that's in the uh, Big 12 SEC Challenge. And then Mississippi State, which is an underrated team in the SEC, they're going to Texas Tech. That's another good matchup. Yeah, yeah, two kind of underrated teams, uh, Mississippi State and Texas Tech. So yeah, I mean, you know, it's 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 kind of like when the Big East played the uh, played the the Big Twelve as well. There's not a whole lot of bad matchups that, that you would get because it's a lot of really good teams. It's, it's very deep leagues. Um, I think that's kind of what's what's been cool about college basketball this season is besides the ACC, you know, the Big Twelve, the SEC, the Big Ten, and the and the Big East are all very very deep conferences. Uh, it's going to be really cool to see, you know, which conference kind of emerges as as, as the, the the top dog. But there's, I think, really probably three or four conferences really have a case for that that top slot as the nation's best conference this season, which is really really fun. You know, parity is good for for college basketball. We don't see parity that much in college football, so it, it's good to see that in college basketball, where you know you have a lot of teams that feel like they can be uh, uh, championship contenders both in their own conference and uh, nationally. Absolutely. And Troy, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. We'll probably check back in. I'd say probably after the Super Bowl will be the next time checking because then we're really going to get the casuals might come with us then at that point. They might be ready to hop on board. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Late or, uh, you know, early February, mid February is kind of where college basketball starts picking up steam nationally. You know, the, the diehards are in right now. Like you mentioned, the casual fans kind of start to come in in February and then they, they're with us all the way through March Madness. So, yeah, really looking forward to it, Mike. Yeah. Maybe ESPN will drive to that point to care about it. <laughs> yeah, we can hope. Fingers crossed. I, I'm not holding my breath, though. Yeah, for sure. Troy, if people want to follow you on Twitter, how can they do that? Sure. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter uh, at Troy Moriello. That last name is M A U R I E L L O. Uh, yeah, I do the Seeing Red podcast, cover St. John's basketball and uh, a little bit of the Big East as a whole. So if you're a St. John's fan or you're a Big East fan or you're just a college basketball fan, definitely check that out. Yeah, I meant to ask, how is the Seeing Red podcast doing without any actual St. John's games for three weeks? It's it's been tough. We we did do we luckily did a show a couple of weeks ago um, be, uh, before the Pittsburgh game. But yeah, we haven't haven't done a show in three weeks. So I'm looking forward to getting back to it uh, and talking about uh, their game against DePaul. Uh, maybe not the best, the most sexy opponent, but I'll be happy to at least have a, have have a game to talk about for the first time in almost a month. Yeah, for sure, Troy. Thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Definitely, Mike. Talk soon. Show me the money. All right, show me the money. NFL picks for week number 18 are here on the podcast. It feels weird that we have 18 weeks of football, but join me today, the host of the Sports in the Waiting Room podcast, Christopher, not the Mad Dog Russo, is here. Christopher, how are you? 
Uh, pretty good. I actually, I actually was referred to for much of my school schooling years as Mad Dog, believe it or not. But yeah, I'm doing all right. I think Joe Buck said uh, going into uh, they were previewing Week 18. This is a weird thing to say. Week 18 next week, and you know, yeah, it's very, very odd. Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, this year I figured, you know, it's a good time to get you in here. We're sort of the New York sports people, so we're gonna sort of do a little autopsy here on the two New York teams. That sound good to you before we get to the picks? That's a, that's a very good way to define it. Yeah, at least for football. No. Yeah, for football. And we can do the positive first. We'll start with the Jets. I mean, the Jets come out here. They play hard against Tampa. They're winning most of the way. They end up losing late. I mean, we can talk about the whole bizarre Antonio Brown thing, too, where he just basically rips off his uniform and leaves the field. But what's your big takeaway from Jets Bucks? Well, first off, they should have won. I, I will say I did not. I was away from uh, home. I didn't really watch most of that game. I try to catch most of the end of it on my phone, but that's a game they definitely should have won. I like that they went for it on fourth and two because you're trying look, it's a Jets team that of course has been frustrated by Tom Brady for hard to believe, but 20 years now. And you know, you're playing for nothing. You're playing the defending champions. It's just a, a frustration move to go for it on fourth and two, just a game you're playing for nothing. But I didn't like the play call itself. I found out that apparently, uh, I, I think it was Salah said Lafleur or, or something like Lafleur gave Wilson the option to sneak, whereas they could have gone with something else, and Wilson took that, and just a whole misinterpretation. I would have, uh, I, I mean, with a guy that size, it, it's one thing if Tom Brady's going to sneak the football from fourth and two. Truth is, if you're going to sneak, you should only do it on fourth and one. But uh, with a guy that's like smaller than me. And uh, you know, for to go two yards instead of one, it's just not really a what the physics of it don't work. Yeah. Uh, so I would have either handed it off to Carter. The run games looked really good from the la- last couple of weeks, or maybe I don't know, run a pick play with Barrios, something like that. They said they were going to end around to him. But I, I think that really goes down to that play. But once you knew they didn't, once they failed on fourth down, I think you kind of knew just just from watching the Jets for the last forget 20, like 50 years that Tom Brady was going to march down the field and win that game. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that play call was right. You said the Aussie to sneak it or hand off the Barrios and whatever miscommunication happened, happened. But for me, it's a loss, you know, as a Jet fan, you can accept because A, they're playing with a very undermanned defense. So you knew as soon as Tom Brady got it back, he's going to go right down the field and score. You play, the quarterback played very well. He had it's probably his most complete game as a pro. And they competed with a team that went to the Super Bowl last year. They were up for most of that game. It looked like the better team for a significant part of it. That's a big positive for the Jets. They've been playing well down the stretch. Yeah, it really was a Pyrrhic victory for them. I would say, I mean, you know, some people have said that the, the Buccaneers were undermanned, but the truth is the Buccaneers should have blown out the Jets regardless of their personnel anyway. So the fact that Jets even kept that close is, is a, I think, one, a detriment to the Buccaneers, but it's also a good mark for the Jets. And uh, I mean, yeah, no God, when I don't care, who cares? Tom Brady made one of the best throws I've ever seen him make before. I don't know if you saw, there was like a 30 yard pass down the middle of the field to Gronkowski in this game. And I think it's maybe the best throw I've ever seen him make. And so somehow at 44 years old, the guy keeps defying age and logic. So I, I think the fact that Jets even kept this game close, and I even said last year, it wasn't even Brady that really won them that Super Bowl. I thought it was the defensive line that dominated. And so the fact they could put up 24 points on that team and, and do most of that in the first half was just impressive in the first place. Yeah, for sure. And for me, I mean, look ahead to this week's finale against the Bills. I mean, they're not going to win the game. We know that the Bills have too much on the line here with the division. It's a road game. So all you ask for for the Jets, in my opinion, is 
go out, be respectable. Don't go out and get yourself lose this game 34-3. Like, go out there and be competitive in this game. We know you're not winning it, but put up, put forth a good, good fight. Yeah, they got destroyed by Buffalo back in November, yeah. and this was in East Rutherford. Yeah. I would say, I don't know, it's really tough. Look, they, the odds are they'd lose this game even if Buffalo was playing for nothing. But the they can give them a run for their money at least. I mean, if they won this game, it, it would be somewhat similar to it would be the kind of the inverse of Rex Ryan in 2015 with Fitzpatrick uh, playing for the Jets in week 17, but that's not going to happen. If you can just play it close, obviously the bills don't have an incredible run game play to that. And their defense is not nearly as strong as that of Tampa Bay. I think Buffalo probably would scare me more as an opposing team than Tampa Bay would, but Tampa Bay is obviously a more complete team, but uh, I I don't know. I I would say this is going to be, it's going to be closer than 45 17 i think but it'll probably still be a fairly wide margin of probably an expected margin of victory yeah they should win by double days i wouldn't be surprised if it's closer than that yeah all right and let's go to the other team in town the new york football giants who put up an absolute uh stink bomb against the bears on sunday they lose 29 to 3 they can't even attempt to throw the football because Mike Glennon is an apt quarterback. It turns out now he's hurt, so Jake Fromm's going to end up starting on Sunday. And this was a complete disaster as a team that, you know, the Bears, we all know, are firing Matt Nagy on Monday. It's a matter of, like, whether it's after this game, whether he shows up at the, to the office in the morning. But the Giants look like they not want to be there. That's a big problem. Yeah, you know, as opposed to the Jets game, as, a, as just a, a fan of good football, I'm very glad I was away from the television for this game. Yeah. This was maybe the most – the Giants may have lost by more points this year, but this was definitely their most, frankly, disgraceful loss of the year. It's like they lost with Dallas, but, you know, Dallas, he kind of understood. Plus, he already had Glennon out. I think the one thing that really I do not understand is why the Giants keep trying to, to make something out of Mike Glennon that he's absolutely not. I understand that Jake Fromm did not perform well against the Eagles, but – I would certainly take Jake Fromm over Mike Glennon, especially after this week. It's uh, look, look, if you have Daniel Jones at quarterback, it, it's not a huge difference considering the offensive line besides Andrew Thomas is that bad. But the Giants defense was actually fairly good in this game. Really, they let up only 13 points when you consider that two of the Bears touchdown drives, they drove for a combined 26 yards and came off of turnovers. Giants turned over the ball four times. I mean, they had to go two yards on their opening drive just to score a touchdown. So uh, really, this was up to Glennon and the offensive line. It let up four sacks. Uh, just uh, the, the one good thing I will say about the Giants this week, they finally stopped kind of coddling Saquon Barkley, and they handed him the ball a lot. He had, let's see, I had it here, 21 carries for 102 yards. I don't remember the last time they gave him the ball 20 times and let him run for over 100 yards. Because we, when he has a decent offensive line, and can stay healthy. That's the other thing. I think the last few years, the Giants have been probably the most injury-prone team in football. That doesn't help them. But when you hand it to Saquon Barkley, you at least have a chance. Giants did a decent job with time of possession. The big difference was uh, the turnovers and and field position. That was the, the biggest issue for them today, or today, Sunday, against the Bears team that is really marginally better than they are anyway. Yeah. I think the play that saw that game very well was the kickoff sequence there where the returner for the Giants, Farrah Cooper, weighs it off and the ball's bouncing the three-yard line. And then two, 
ends up having to cover up, fall out the five. A couple plays there, there's a safety in the mix here. So that's a bad sign. This is for a coach who's preaching discipline, and especially in his background. You can't do that. Oh, no, it's uh, that's awful. There was a play. I remember there was a play a few years ago. Uh, wasn't there a one? I mean, that kind of showed what, what Buffalo was at the time. Didn't the Jets kick one off and then recover in the end zone for a touchdown? It was a plain kickoff. It wasn't an onside kick and recovered in the end zone for a touchdown against Buffalo. And the Bills didn't know what was going on. This might have been before they had, before they blew it dead once it hit the end zone. But uh, this uh, it was just uh, disgraceful. And it, that's unfortunately the way you can put it for the New York football giants right now. Yeah, for sure. And right now, all the heat's on the head coach here, Joe Judge, who has had a very interesting run here. I mean, did you hear some of the 11-minute rant he started off his post-game press conference with? I saw, I heard maybe a couple of clips. I really saw like poll quotes. That's about it. A couple of them. But from what I've heard, it's unlike anything I've heard in him uh, from him in three years as a head coach, because he was a guy who seemed calm, cool, and collect, almost Belichick-like. And I'm not, I'm not going to say he's – of course, I'm not going to say he's the coach that Belichick is. But in terms of demeanor, maybe a little warmer than Belichick. But in, in terms of demeanor, pretty collected, calm, cool, didn't really call out anyone. And what I've heard of this discussion is unlike anything I've heard of Joe Judge in the last three years. Well, our good friends over at SNY pulled the entire press conference. I went through here. I pulled out some interesting clips here. So we're going to listen to a couple of them and react to these. So let's start out here. Let's start out with the first clip I pulled from Joe Judge's press conference on Sunday afternoon after the loss of the Bears. Now, you guys ain't been in the building for two years now with this coach. All right, but I'll tell you right now. All right, if you're in the damn building, you walk on through our locker room, you ain't seeing that crap you saw before. All right. You ain't seeing guys right now planning vacations. You ain't seeing golf clubs in front of players' locker. You ain't seeing that stuff. Okay? You ain't seeing that. All right? And that's not because of some high school program we're cracking with. It's because our guys understand how to play together as a team. Okay, so let's get this one thing clear here. The bar is not like, oh, we're competing. It's you guys haven't been in the building because of COVID. We're doing all this great stuff behind the scenes and the big progress here is that guys are not playing their tee times in week 17. That sounds great, Chris. Yeah, I, again, it's unlike anything. It's unlike any of the style judges had in his interviews before. He seems very, I think, defensive to say the least is probably the, is probably the best word to put it. Because when you hear Belichick, he at least... And again, I know the comparisons to Belichick are unfair. Comparing anybody except Vince Lombardi to Belichick is unfair. But in terms of demeanor, he just kind of brushes it off. Just it just goes through it his own way. I think the, he's probably the unfortunate way to say it is I think Joe Judge has finally cracked. He's uh, the the media has finally gotten under his skin, and part of that's the media, but that's their job. That's our job. And he's just finally taken the pressure. And this is one of those things where, I mean, some of the Giants firings the last couple of years, I mean, that, that's how bad the Giants have been. Then you could say multiple firings in the last couple of years of a head coach. But Pat Shermer didn't really, Pat Shermer was fired specifically because of on-field performance. Ben McIndoe, yeah, the team was pretty bad, especially his second year, but he had gotten them to the playoffs his first year. Really, he got fired because of fan uproar because he benched Eli Manning and not just because of that he benched him for Geno Smith and with all due respect to Geno Smith I'd, I'd take Eli Manning over Geno Smith especially when he's respected as much as he was 
This is the kind of thing where if Joe Judge ends up getting fired after this week, after the season, whatever, this is where we're going to be pointing. It's not, it's about how you did it on the field. It's about how poorly the team played on the field, but a lot of that comes to personality and just sort of a, a disrespect and a poor attitude. Yeah, for sure. I feel like that was in that clip. I feel like he was sort of defensive, sort of like, oh, knows that the, the 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 job is slipping away from him. He sort of feels like, you know, like we keep putting bad tape out there, bad tape out there. I got to defend my process and show you, like, you guys can't see it, but we're getting better. So sort of like high behind, like, well, like, don't look at this flaming pile of dog poop over here. Look over here at all the stuff you can't see, but we're no, we're all bonding. Look at this dog poop that's not flaming. Yes. Yeah, you know, it's. Yeah, it's, I should, should pull a clip from Billy Madison for that, actually. Yeah. But, yeah, you know, it's funny. I texted I texted you and I said, I don't know if you if you knew about this, but I was I, as someone who looks at Wikipedia constantly, I figured out that this must have, this was 2004, the ALCS, uh, just a specific thing I was thinking of, uh, Red Sox and Yankees, and it's when Bronson, when A-Rod slaps the ball out of Bronson Arroyo's glove and it, uh, they, and the umpires rule it an illegal play, they rule him out. And Joe West was one of the umpires, and he apparently came out and said, and this was after fans were throwing stuff on the field and they had to get the riot uh, guard from the NYPD out on the field. He apparently said that before game seven, when the Yankees had given up, has lost three straight games against the Red Sox, forced game seven, that the crowd cheered the umpires as they came onto the field. That could not possibly be true, and that's kind of Joe Judge's sense of reality right now where he's just kind of, he's in denial. He's lost his sense of reality. Uh, we're getting to the, more of the denial of sense of reality here. There's more clips here. So let's go to our next clip from Joe Judd. See what else you got to say. I can tell you we got more players here who are going to be free agents next year, all right, who are in my office every day begging to come back. I know that. Okay, I know that. Or players that we coached last year that still call me twice a week talking about, you know, how much they wish they were still here even though they're getting paid more somewhere else. Yeah, that, this is complete, utter bullshit. No, sorry, pardon my language here. And you look at this, like, A, like – all the players on last year's team, Bill Barnwell did a great thread on this on Twitter. It's like the vast majority of them got paid far less money to go somewhere else. And a lot of them are not either on rosters or in the league. And the two guys that are qualified, I think one, I think Dalvin Tomlinson is on the Vikings who are in playoff contention and were eliminated this week. That was BJ Hill. I think he was in Cincinnati. So like, which of those two guys say, you know what? Like screw my current situation. I'm going to come back to the Giants because that's where I want to be. So he was talking about, I just want to clarify here. First off, did he say begging? Yes, begging. Oh God! Oh Joe, <laughs> uh, the so that's one thing. That's look. If you're saying you want to come back, yeah, that's one thing I can understand. That it's a, it's a, a, fr- a franchise that's you know won a lot, generally respected. But begging, that's not. That's not. And if you're going to beg, you're going to beg to the general manager. You're not going to beg to the coach. And then, oh boy, Dalvin Tom, Dalvin Tomlinson and B.J. Hill. Yeah, those are guys who have well, – B.J. Hill doesn't have an incredible career, but still, Cincinnati is a team that still theoretically could end up with a one seed after this weekend. And the Vikings are a team that, while their defense is – especially their secondary has been pretty bad, they're a good enough team that they've competed this year. Yeah, I don't I don't know what Joe Judge is talking about. That's, again, that's a, that's a coach that is – just trying to hold on for dear life. My brother actually told me about this might've been part of that thread. Was it Scott Simonson set out some tweet or something about how, Oh, you know what? This was not about. about Yeah. This is about Gettleman. 
but I mean, it's close enough, really, where he said where he said something about misdiagnosing an ankle injury and something where this sounded harsh, but something about him actually being like one of like a horrible person. I think he clarified that as to, to be about the ankle injury, but that obviously shows that there is unfortunately there is unfortunately a, a bit of a culture problem in general with the Giants organization, if that is true. And so that's another concerning sign. Oh, it absolutely is. And I mean, the whole idea of, you know, oh, we're going to, we have guys who want to come here. We have guys who left who want to come back. It's just sort of more screening to the first point. Like, look, like we're building a culture. People want to be here. Ignore the fact that our team stinks, but we are, we are a place people want to be. We're, we're building a family here. Yeah, I would think if he means guys that, are, that want to come back, I would think he probably means guys that retired and want to come back just to help the team. Yeah. I would, I would think that's probably how it works. I mean, in turn, uh, so like, for example, if, you know, they were talking about Drew Brees, maybe coming in for the saints. I, I think I kind of said that giants might've been better off and maybe not from, but at least with Glenn. And I think the giant, I was like, for one second, I was thinking, could they bring Eli back? I feel like Eli maybe mm-hmm. could still have a little left in him. I, and so I don't, I really, I'm like a Tom Brady still playing at 44. I mean, maybe Eli still got something. Yeah. I think Eli's having too but, much fun doing the Manning cast to actually come back. Oh, no, of course he is. And uh, Breeze is having the same amount of fun with NBC Sports. But uh, it's like for a second, you're seriously considering it. That's how bad they've been. So uh, that's that's just where my mind went. Yeah. Let's continue with Judge losing his touch on reality. I got another clip here. Talk about his time with the 2018 New England Patriots. So let's listen to this. I've been a part of teams else places, okay? And I'm not trying to make this place anywhere else I've been. But lessons I've learned. Let me tell you something right now. All right? In 2018, I was part of a team who halfway through the season, all right, we were all pretty convinced we were getting fired. Didn't think we were going to make the playoffs. Had no concept of anything that was coming. We just knew we were going to keep showing up and improving and working week after week. And on the outside, we were all terrible. And we didn't care about any of that noise on the outside. Didn't care about it at all. What do you care about on the inside? What are we doing? Guys showed up, they worked, they fought, they worked. We were improve enough as a team and put things together and make a run and end up, you know, win a championship. But the thing I really learned that year was the importance of the culture inside, how important and valuable that is. Because I was part of more talented teams that came up short and lost games down the stretch. Much more talented, all right? But the one thing that really was solidified in my mind, in my DNA that, that year in 18 was the fact that it's so much more important how strong you are inside because no team goes through a smooth season. No team goes through a smooth season. So I did some fact-checking on uh, his claim that they were all going to get fired in the middle of the season in 2018. Which, by the way, he was right. They didn't win the Super Bowl that year. That was the year they beat the Rams 13-3 to out, I think, in the Mercedes-Benz Dome in Atlanta. Through week nine, halfway through the season there, the Patriots were 7-2 and in clear control of the AFC East. So I have no idea what he was talking about. Like, oh, we're all worried about being fired. I think I can actually understand what he means at this point because I can tell you from uh, working with uh, working with different teams a lot of the best coaches i know even personally have known are hard on themselves hard on their own teams even when the result looks good on the field or on the court or on the ice so i can kind of i think i might understand what he means there and obviously that was the end of the patriot dynasty well the end of the tom brady patriot dynasty let's clarify that because the paths look pretty good right now but, you know, you could look not too great and still be seven to two. And the other thing is the Patriots, 
over the last 20 years have held themselves to such a standard of excellence that that probably seemed mediocre to them that it's they, they want they want to be as close to perfect as they can be so i kind of understand where he's going where, what he's talking about there but the problem is i think he's clearly calling out his team when he's making the uh, when he's talking about there's more talented teams that have lost or, or sorry more, yeah more talented teams that have lost worst teams that have won He's clearly making a comparison between the New England Patriots organization and the New York Giants organization. And I would say he's specifically doing that from a player personnel standpoint, not necessarily from a managerial standpoint, but definitely in terms of the roster, which is just an unfair comparison. And I, I think I think that's a veiled that's a veiled call out of his players. Yeah, well, that's not great either. And he did have a lot of other points where he's talking about media being like out of whack and all sorts of stuff. But I wanted to end with this last clip from Joe Judge's press conference about the standards the organization is living up to right now. This ain't a team that's having fistfights on the sidelines. This ain't some clown show organization or something else. That's a very low bar to clear. We're not fighting each other on the sideline. Yeah, that's, that's kind of like raising the bar on South Park. You're just trying to, you're not, you're not getting above much. Um, they're going to need uh, James Cameron, the the oceanographer, to get in there. Anyway, I don't know if anyone will get that. Anyway, yeah, that's that's not really a high bar whatsoever. That's pretty much just saying, you know, we're not Buddy Ryan and Kevin Gilbride punching each other on the sideline, and that's not that's not saying much. You can have, I mean, frankly, you can have team turmoil and win. Look at the, I mean, when Odell Beckham Jr. was with the Giants, I I want to say that whole stupid thing with the net was the year they went to the playoffs. Yeah. So again, you can be, yeah, you can have not much turmoil in the locker room, but if you're terrible, you're terrible. Yeah. And they are terrible. I mean, you look at their last five games, they lost all five by double digits, 29 to Miami, 37, 21 to the chargers. And those 21 points, came on a couple of time touchdowns, 21, six to the Cowboys, 34, 10 to the Eagles last week in Philly, then 29 to three in Chicago. I mean, like they're not even competitive. That's a problem. The funny thing I will say is that some of those some of those are actually kind of misleading in that the dolphin the dolphin game was pretty competitive for a while. The Eagle game was three three at the half, but it, it, their offense was just that poor in the second half. Kept turning the ball over, and the defense can only take their defense is actually decent, decent to good, but they can only take so much from the offense and how bad it is. And it's just, but it's just inexcusable how the team overall is performing. It's absolutely true. Yeah, and. Even Daniel Jones, when he was here, they were average on offense, but you can't just take him out of the lab and be completely inept offensively. That's not that's not a good look on your coach either. No, I would say with Jones is actually, I think, a good quarterback if you put a decent offensive line in front of him. That's what, I think that's why Eli Manning's last four or five years of his career were so bad. He had a very he had like a 35, he had maybe the best year of his career in 2014, I think, 2015. And then the offensive line just kind of slowly went away. And that's been their biggest problem. Obviously, there's a problem with the entire team in terms of personnel, but that's been their biggest problem over the last five, six years is the offensive line has just been that weak. When Jones is healthy and has a good offense, we haven't even seen him with a good offensive line, really. I, I don't think he's reached his full potential, but that is he this this is true of any player, any quarterback. You need to have the right people around you. And Daniel Jones obviously does not have the right people around him. Yeah, I think in terms of what's going on here, I mean, right now there's a lot of chat about, you know, 
Is he safe? Is, is Dave, does uh, John Mara think that he's an ex Bill Belichick or Bill Parcell, which is completely out of line? But like I'll mention this here, it's like there's a theory flowing around from some people. I think notably SNY's Ralph Bacchiano has said, you know what, you can't fire him because you can't fire coaches every two years like they did with McAdoo, like they did with Shermer. My problem with that thing is, is like when you clearly have the wrong guy, and I think right now the way the Giants are training, it's clear they have the wrong guy. You don't compound the mistake by bringing him back and, oh, we have to give somebody extra run here because then you're firing Dave Gettleman potentially, you're letting him retire, and then you're either bringing in a Joe Judge crony or promoting within because nobody's going to want to take that job under these circumstances. And you're just kicking the can down the road. You got to blow the whole thing up, blow the whole thing up, and get it right one time instead of constantly cycling through like bad options or extending bad options because you don't want to look like you're firing coaches too often. Yeah, this is not. And again, there are fan bases, I would say, that are a lot less spoiled than giant fan bases are in that they've won two championships since 2007. They've won four since 1986. And they're like one of the really they're actually one of the three most successful franchises in the history of pro football. But the thing is, they're getting on a pace They're It's it's still slow compared to that one, but they're getting on a pace of what the team was between 1965 and 1978, 79, where they never made the playoffs. The team was in constant turmoil. And I mean, it was, it was like the point between YA Tittle retiring and uh, Bill Parcells and George Young and Phil Sims coming in and turning everything around where there was uh, turmoil within the ownership. And I think one of the Maras had, I think it was, uh, one of the Maras had sold his stake and it was just a mess. And five years compared to 14 years, it's been five years since they made the playoffs. It's smaller than that, but if they keep going down this path, it's there's, there's going to be far more frustration within the fan base than there. I would think there already is. Yeah, and I mean, it's funny. They're talking about last week. You're talking about, oh, you know, we'll come in here, we'll put a chip on, like, which franchise is in better shape right now. You're, right now, if you watch these two teams, like, you have to put the chip on the Jets. The Jets are not great by any means. At least they look like they're pointing in a direction and know where they're going. The Giants are literally rudderless in the middle of the ocean. Yeah, and I would say that, and again, you know, obviously the Jets have been in bigger turmoil for a longer time, but the Jets have a more promising future right now. Uh, Wilson has finally awoken in the last few weeks since he came back from injury. I would say uh, Salah for the most, uh, Salah has been, eh, he's been fine. He's been okay. There's some trouble on the offensive line. I would say we don't really know what's happening with Becton, even though he's, it's like, it's, he's a very on off player. I think the receiving core is actually a lot deeper than you think. And defense has been, their pass rushes. Okay, I would say, but they are certainly in a better place than the Giants are right now. Yeah, and the Giants have a meaningless game on Sunday afternoon against Washington here, and the typical Giants have to win this game, ruin their draft stock, and not thank you picks, and then had John Mara say, "Great, Joe Judge, the team hasn't lost him; he's coming back next year." Yeah, I don't. I really don't know what to say. Look, the one there are a couple of differences I would say between. The two years where Joe Judge has been head coach and right, it's two, I think it's yep. it's his second year, right? His second year. Okay. The two years when he was coaching, the two years when McAdoo was coaching, the two years when Sherman was coach, I'll give him a little bit of the benefit of the doubt in that he had to coach through a pandemic, still coaching through a pandemic, really. But 
and he had a coach through a shutdown to start his career with the Giants. It's a little more difficult to try to find connections with players and yada, yada. It makes things difficult logistically. I still don't think it's an excuse whatsoever. And I will also say, but this kind of applies to Shermer and McAdoo anyway. I, I legitimately think there is something wrong with the turf at MetLife Stadium because of how, how injured the Giants have been. Their skill players in particular have been. Think about how, how many injuries Saquon Barkley has faced. The game alone where was it Beckham, Shepard, and I think Brandon Marshall all went down for the season in the same game. There, I think there is legitimately something wrong with that stadium, um, besides the color. Anyway, the so again, I don't. There are a couple of things where I'll give Joe Judge the benefit of the doubt, but I think after that little outburst, I think when we thought after Ben McAdoo, before Ben McAdoo sat Eli, I think we thought, okay, he's probably coming back for a third year. But after after it, and after this little outburst by Judge, I think I think he's done. Yeah, he should be done. But let's get to the pick. The reason why you're here this week, uh, Joey Castellano was here last week on the picks. He went. He had the rare one, one and one. He had a win, a loss, and a push. He had the Chargers laying the five and a half. They blew the Broncos out. He got that there. He had a bad beat the Texans. He had them plus thirteen and a half, and the 49ers kicked a field goal the last minute to cover the number. He had the Washington Football Team plus four. That was a push because they lost by four. So one, one and one on the week for him. Yeah, that's a rarity. Yeah, I had a two zero in one week. So. Just for interesting sake here, I took the Patriots laying 16 and a half against the Jaguars at the lock of the week. They won by 40. I had the Packers. I locked in the number early, six and a half points before Kirk Cousins got COVID and missed the game, but I would have won. I would have covered it if they had the bigger number. So that's two and there. I went heads up with them on that Eagle watching football thing. I had the Eagles laying the four, so that was also a push for me. So we both pushed on the same game. Okay. Well, again, I am not... Uh... I am not the gambler, but I can predict. Uh, I can predict some things. So this week I went with Hold first we're, off. Oh, we're getting there. One second. Oh yeah, sorry. Yeah. About- yeah. So on the year, the challengers are 21, 28, and two. So not a great year overall. I'm 27, 23, and one. I've been nudging forward a little bit the last few weeks here. So we're gonna go ahead now. We're gonna start doing some NFL picks for the last week of the regular season. And Chris, since you are the guest, you're up first. Where are you going with your first pick of the week? Well, I think uh, this should be a fairly easy one. I I think that, well, maybe not. I think the Jets actually cover uh, against the Bills this week in Orchard Park. 16 and a half point spread at last I saw. Jets played Tampa Bay down to the wire, and they probably should have won that game, frankly, and Tampa Bay's a better team than Buffalo overall. So I say they will keep it a bit closer, especially because it's going to be a lot colder, I would think. Yeah, I like that number, too, because I think the number's too big for the Jets. I think they've been playing hard down the stretch. Wilson's been playing a little better. Second time seeing Buffalo, he should be, at least I think Buffalo, first time he watched on the sideline with Mike White played, so he should get an idea of what they want to do. I think they're going to be in this game for a while. I think Buffalo's going to win probably by two touchdowns. I think the 16 has a, big, a bridge too far, so I like what you're doing there. Yeah, it was not Wilson last time. I figured it was Mike White. He yep. threw four picks in that yep. game, and that really resulted in probably most of the points in that game, I would say, for Buffalo. All right, let's go ahead. Pick number. Are you going with pick number two? Pick number two. I am saying the Raiders will cover the two and a half point spread against the Chargers in Las Vegas. Technically, I think it's either in Paradise or Henderson, Nevada. But I think the Raiders are going to cover. Not only that, I think the Raiders are actually going to win, even though I'd say the Chargers are probably the more talented team. The Raiders are trying to reach the playoffs for the first time since 2016. It's the first uh, final week of the regular season in that building with fans there. And it's the first home game there since John Madden passed. It's going to be an emotional building. 
And I, I, I think the Raiders not only cover, but win this game and go to the playoffs. I love that pick. I didn't do it because the game is tight, so I'll props to you for that. But I think this is a spot where the Chargers are going to get ambushed here because as this team is never goes a favorite. They usually are terrible when they have these kinds of spots here. They go on the road against a Raiders team that's filled with emotion. They had the Madden factor, the building. I mean, a lot of visiting fans go to Vegas, but this week, the Chargers fans don't travel. So we have pretty much a full Vegas crowd there rooting the Raiders on. That's going to be a very tough spot for the Chargers. I like having the points in that game. Who, who can blame the Charger fans for not traveling? They're all in San Diego. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I I don't think anyone gives Derek Carr really enough credit. He probably should have won the MVP back in 15 before he shattered his ankle. Uh, he's a really underrated quarterback, I think, in this league. All right. Last one. Yep. Yeah. Last one. Bengals will cover the two and a half point spread in Cleveland. I'm surprised it's actually that narrow for a Cleveland team that is out of the playoffs. And uh, originally it was one and a half before Baker Mayfield was ruled out, which is wild. But the Bengals are shooting for the highest seed possible. They could still get the one seed if uh, if they win. Denver somehow knocks off Kansas City, and by some miracle for them, Houston upsets Tennessee. That's going to be bad for them for a draft pick anyway. And Cleveland, yeah, Cleveland playing for nothing. Baker's not going to play. So yeah, I will take the Bengals in that game to cover two and a half point spread. Yeah, that's definitely an interesting pick there. I do like the line there. I think the Bengals obviously have home field to, I've had potentially home field to play for Joe Burrow there's a question which is why I stay away from that game but I can see the logic yeah. alright I'm up now with my three picks here pick number one I'm going to take an underdog here I'm going to take the Dolphins getting seven points at home against the Patriots in week 18 and Miami always plays well against New England down at Sun Rock Sunlight Stadium whatever the hell the name of the stadium is now and this is a spot here Flores does well against the Patriots they beat them week one they beat them a couple of years ago at the end of the season when Miami was terrible New England was playing for a first round bye and I think here this is a spot where New England is going down there Mac Jones has not been great on the road so far this season I think Miami says you know what we're going down with a fight we're going to make their life miserable to deny them the division I think the Dolphins have a shot winning this outright but I'll take the seven points pick one Mike, first off, it's been pro player Joe Robbie, Dolphin Stadium, Sun Life, Land Shark for the beer, and now it is Hard Rock Stadium. And I think they've done a good job with actually with yeah. the renovation. I, you know, I, I think that's a good pick because I, I don't know why people called out the Dolphins so much entering this season and said they were really going to be underwhelming after last year. They went on a great run and they're going to miss the playoffs, but I think the fact that they won that many games in a row after a one and seven start, I think, yeah. is is very impressive. And I think that's an organization in a good direction. They could keep it close with New England. All right, let's pick one. Pick number two. These two lines don't make sense because I'm going with them. I'm taking the Bucks laying eight at home against the Panthers. And I know Tampa can't get home field, but they can play for the two seed, which means they get the second home game, which is massive for them. They want to put up a good effort after they struggled against the Jets last week and nearly won that game. And what is Carolina showing up for? What do they actually care in this game? I mean, they're completely out of it. They're 5-11. and 11. Sam Darnold has not played well all season long. And Taylor Bay laying eight points. I think this game's going to be a blowout. I don't think Carolina's going to show up for this game. So give me the Bucks laying the eight pick two. Yeah, I had high expectations for the Panthers, I think, going into this season. And then uh, for the first three weeks, they were really good. And then after that Cowboy game in week four, the team was an enigma, especially at quarterback, where they were quitting on Darnold so quickly, and then they went to, and then they some, and they went to PJ Walker, and then they went out and got Cam Newton, and they said that was a mistake. And I don't know where that organization that organization is in limbo right now. That game should be a pretty large victory for Tampa Bay. All right, that's pick number two. Pick number three is one I also don't understand considering the stakes on the line for the team involved here. I'm thinking Arizona laying six and a half at home against Seattle. I mean, they're playing at 430, same time as the Rams. They are playing for the NFC West. 
Seattle is not good. They beat up Detroit barely last week. Detroit almost came back and won that game. Russell Wilson might be on his way out. You don't know how checked that he needs to this game. Arizona played very well against the Cowboys last week. They have a shot at the division, and they're not going to know a kickoff that they're out of it because they're playing at the same time. And I only have to get a touchdown to cover here. I think this is a game where Arizona has a lot more on the line than Seattle in their home. So I'm going to lay the six and a half points to the Cardinals, my last pick of the week. Yeah, the Cardinals should definitely beat the Seahawks. I don't know if it's going to be a blowout, but it, it should de- they should definitely cover six and a half, especially because Niners play, the Niners play the Rams. That's a potentially winnable game for the Niners. They could very well end up not only with the division, but the two seed at the end of this day, the Cardinals could. Yeah, and the 49ers have to win that game to get in the playoffs because odds are if they lose it, they're out because the Saints are probably going to beat the Falcons. Probably, I, w- I would think. Although we don't know. I, I mean, Matt Ryan, you never know. It could be Matt Ryan's game in Atlanta, last game in Atlanta. We uh, There have been rumors about that. You never really know. All right, so to reset the picks here, Chris is taking the Jets plus 16 and a half in Buffalo on Sunday. The Raiders getting two and a half in the winner die game on Sunday Night Football and the Bengals laying two and a half against the Cleveland Browns minus Baker Mayfield. I am taking the Dolphins plus seven at home against the Patriots. The Bucks laying eight at home against the against the Carolina Panthers and the Arizona Cardinals minus six and a half at home against the Seahawks. Those are your picks for week 18. And next week, super wild card weekend. I'm going to take all the games with my buddy Dan Martini, a Colts fan, and his team should be playing there. Bar something very strange against the Jaguars. If they lose to the Jaguars, they deserve to miss the playoffs. That, yeah. Especially a, a Jaguar. Well, if they had lost with them with Urban Meyer, I think it would be even worse. But Losing without them, uh, him, yeah, that's going to be, there will be riots in Indianapolis if they somehow lose to the Jaguars and miss the playoffs. Yeah, that's situation, that game's going to be a little wild because, I mean, believe it or not, the Colts have not won down there since 2014, which is actually incredible if you think about it. How is that possible? I mean, for a Jaguars team that aside from 2016 has choked year after year after, forget choked, you have to be good at some point to choke. And so I don't, yeah, that that really does not make any sense to me. Yeah, that doesn't make sense either. I mean, you have reports of the Jaguar fans who have dressed up as clowns to the game to send a message to Shad Khan about, like, you know, organizations that Joe, we need to fire Trent Baalke and start over. And then you have this whole thing where if somehow they win this game, the theoretically the Chargers and the Raiders could do the soccer-style collusion and agree to play for a tie and both make the playoffs. Which is going to be kind of disgraceful for the <laughs> NFL if that happens, especially for the last game of the regular season yeah. where we really want to see something exciting. But uh, yeah, it's it's a, honestly going back to the Jaguars. It's still a wonder how they have gone down that far after being this close to going to the Super Bowl at, uh, against that game against the Patriots. So I I don't know what has happened to that organization, but yeah, it should be the Colts. And I would I'm saying it's going to be the Colts and the Raiders end up with those last two. Yeah, I think as I think as I'm saying, I make my make my picks: Colts, Raiders, the last two spots to get AFC. I think the Saints get the last spot in the NFC. I think the Rams are going to close the division out. Yeah, yeah, I'm leaning towards that, especially because the game is in L.A. or Inglewood. So, yeah. yeah, I'd take the Rams on that one. Plus, the Rams lost the Niners early this year, so they had that little mo- revenge motivation here. Yeah. All right, Chris, thank you all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, I'll be a follow on Twitter and keep up with the Sports in the Lane Room podcast. Yeah, you can find me on uh, on uh, Twitter at ChrisRusso98, C-H-R-I-S-R-U-S-S-O-9-8. And uh, the podcast comes out once a week, try, or, or well, we try to get it once a week, once a week as much as possible. Uh, it comes out on Wednesday, and so I'm actually going to be recording it not long after this, and we'll usually get it out in the late afternoon, early evening. Sounds good, Chris. Thanks for all the time. Really appreciate it. Hey, Mike, appreciate it. Good to see you. The two minute drill.
All right, two-minute drill time. I'm going to be honest. I was playing to talk about the college football playoff semifinals here, but both games stunk. They were very bad. Cincinnati fought hard, played very well defensively. Offensively was not great. That were matched against Alabama. They lost. That's not a surprise. Michigan, bigger surprise, bigger disappointment. They got run out of the building by Georgia. Georgia jumps out early. Before you can blink, they're down two touchdowns, Michigan. They never recovered. And you had two blowouts on New Year's Eve. People probably switched off these games pretty early. And there we go. We get Alabama-Georgia again, which the South's going to be going bonkers for. The South will go crazy. The rest of the country, not so much. I don't think it's going to have a big number nationally. And the only thing of intrigue in this game to me is, is this the year that Georgia can finally beat Alabama in a big spot? They have never done it as long as Saban's head coach. Is this the year? We will find out. But the big thing to take away from college football, however, is that Mr. Kirk Herbstreit is a hypocrite. He was covering the Rose Bowl for ESPN over the weekend, and he had some interesting thoughts on the topic of players opting out of their bowl games to get ready for the draft, which has been a more common occurrence in recent years. Here's what Kirk Herbstreit had to say, courtesy ESPN money the amount of money like what's the difference as a player in saying these games are meaningless when Des, we played in quote-unquote meaningless games I mean I know you guys were right. here a lot but I just don't understand if you don't make it to the playoff how is it meaningless to yeah. play football and compete isn't that what we do as right. football players we we compete so yeah. I, I don't know if I don't know if changing and expanding it yeah. is going to ch change anything I really don't I think this era of player just doesn't love football this take, I swear, is the literal definition of the old man screen, get off my lawn. It's not even funny. These players love football. It's about what Kirk Herbstreit thinks. They love football so much that they are playing in college by the fact that they do not get paid. And let's not mistake NIL for actually being paid. NIL was A this season. So the players make money off endorsements and little marketing deals. But that is not the same thing that they will earn in the National Football League. A lot of these guys will earn millions of dollars in the NFL. Let's say, for example, you are a top NFL prospect. Your team doesn't make the playoff, which sucks, but happens. But you are invited to the Fiesta Bowl. You can go play the Fiesta Bowl, but if you go there and you get hurt, you could cost yourself millions of dollars because let's say you are a potential first-round pick. You go out there, you blow out your knee, you can fall the third, fourth round. That's a lot of money you lost. Not a time to be damaging your future. So if you and your family decide, you know what, I think this is the smarter play, I have zero problem with that. If you want to protect yourself over a game, it means literally nothing other than pride. You know who does benefit from the top players playing in the bowl games? That would be the network that broadcasts them at ESPN, who Mr. Herbstreit happens to work for. I did not hear Kirk Herbstreit complaining when Brian Kelly and Lincoln Riley abandoned their schools before the bowl games. Do they not love football? As long as the players are not getting paid, you have no right to complain about the decisions they make. If the players are getting paid by the schools, fine, let's have this argument, talk about how they're not prioritizing the bowl games, but until they do, Kirk Harvey cannot be whining about players not loving football because they're opting out of bowl games. These guys have millions of dollars on the line. You could tear a knee 
You could blow out your Achilles. Your stock could plummet. You could cost yourself millions. You'll never make back. If you want to play, all the power to you. If you want to sit out, I will never fault you. As simple as that. And with that, I want to end the show. I want to thank, I guess, Troy Moriel for hopping on here, doing a college basketball check-in. It's been the routine here on the Justin and Suffering podcast. We'll do it again next month. We'll start revving up for the NCAA tournament coming up in March. Also, thank Christopher Russo for a very, very interesting pick segment. Wrap up the right we go season there. You want to look at stuff like this podcast, including my look at what New Year's resolutions the New York sports teams should make for themselves. And they got a lot to resolve to improve. So check that out over at justendthesuffering.wordpress.com. Go subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, Google Play, all the usual suspects. Simply search for Just and the Suffering, your favorite podcast platform. You can find all episodes there. You can also check out the YouTube page, Mike Phillips on YouTube. Video versions of these conversations with Troy and Christopher are up on the YouTube page as well. Mike Phillips on YouTube. So your feedback and star rating as well. That'll make the podcast even better going forward. So please do that. I really appreciate it. I also want to let you guys know, if you are fans of the Sky Guys and the Star Wars coverage, the Book of Boa Fett, we have a Sky Guys exclusive podcast feed. That is the Sky Guys on all your favorite podcast platforms. Like, you know, if you subscribe there, you will get the Sky Guys episodes earlier. So, for example, the Book of Boa Fett releases the episodes on Wednesday. Most time, we will get them out on the Sky Guys feed Thursday, latest Friday. On this feed, you're going to have to wait a couple of days because... I want to give you incentive to, you know, check out the Sky Guys feed. So you'll still get Book of Boa Fett coverage and any other Star Wars cards we do, but it'll be a couple of days behind the Sky Guys feed. So again, you want the, right away, go to Sky Guys. If you don't want to do that, that's cool. You will get them, but you have to wait. Also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-3-3-1. And as I mentioned, we're going to have a Sky Guys episode later this week, but coming up next week, we're going to get ready for the NFL playoffs. You can get ready for the Super Raw Car Weekend, NFL picks, and more. Until then, I hope you have a better week than Giants fans. This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.